This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It is Friday, February 24, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. In for Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on today's show, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig join in for the weekly news panel. Today, they discuss, they also chat about Google's push to, uh, Google's push back on the Online News Act. And they explore the issues around Ontario's autism support services. But first, we begin with our top news story of the day. And really, the one major news story of the day is today marks the one-year anniversary to the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Laura Osman is in Kyiv and describes the scene as the country enters the second year of this war. For City of Millions, the capital city of Kyiv remains eerily quiet. One year ago, missile strikes rained down on this country while Russian tanks rolled toward the city. Some Ukrainians are fearing a repeat of that terror today as they mark the first anniversary of the invasion. Some have left flowers outside of St. Michael's Ukrainian Orthodox Church, where pictures of fallen soldiers are posted along the building's perimeter. Laura Osman, the Canadian Press, Kyiv, Ukraine. The UN General Assembly voted overwhelmingly in favor of a resolution calling for Russia to end the invasion and withdraw its troops. U.S. Ambassador to Japan Rahm Emanuel says the message is clear. 141 nations a year ago and 141 nations just the other day, or just a few hours ago, voted to condemn not only this war, but the integrity of uh, uh, Ukraine. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba is pleased with the results of that vote. We are satisfied with the outcome and the message is clear. It doesn't matter what Russia tries and how it attempts to undermine international order and the coalition in support of Ukraine's territorial integrity, it fails one time after another. G7 nations will mark the anniversary by providing more supports for Ukraine. Andy Field files this report. G7 nation leaders will hold a video conference with Ukraine's President Zelensky to coordinate the next round of military aid as well as delivering more economic punishment. Go after more Russian banks, Russia's defense and technology industry. Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre saying other nations are planning on tightening their economic vice on Russia as well. Andy Field, ABC News, Washington. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reaffirmed Canada's support to Ukraine. Canada will continue to do whatever is necessary to ensure that Russia does not benefit from having illegally invaded Ukraine. We will stand with the people of Ukraine as long as it takes. He sees Ukraine fighting for more than just their nation's sovereignty. They are fighting to uphold the rules that underpin all of our democracies, territorial integrity, respect for sovereignty, respect for international law and the UN Charter. These are things that have led to a period of stability and prosperity around the world. 
Trudeau explains that it's more, it is important to stand up to Russia to dissuade other nations from taking similar actions. And it's not just a question of Russia's behavior towards Ukraine or any countries around Russia. It's a question of other countries around the world wondering that, oh, perhaps might makes right now. Perhaps because we have a larger army than our neighbor, we can invade, we can attack. As for the Ukrainian people, Canada's ambassador to Ukraine, Larissa Gaudaza, says that they are still fighting this fight every day. Another person said to me, I still feel the fear at the level of my cells. I can't, I can't think about it. Someone else said, I want the year to be deleted. It can safely be deleted from my mind. So Ukrainians are still, they're in a state of war. And back here at home, a number of events are planned today to take place nationwide to support Ukraine. Rob Westgate explains. Spearheaded by the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, some 40 Stand With Ukraine events are planned for major cities right across the country, from St. John's, Newfoundland to Whitehorse, Yukon. The events are scheduled for various times throughout the day. However, the bulk of them will be candlelight vigils in the early evening. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will make an appearance in Toronto and speak to the media about the grim anniversary. He'll also take part in a vigil later in the day for the victims of the war. Rob Westgate the Canadian press. And now it is time for our daily polls. We're going to start with the results of Thursday's poll where I asked you, how do you consume your news? This is going to tie into our second topic on the news panel today. 22% of you said you consume it through TV, 14% through print and online newspapers, 0% said radio, and 64% of you said online or social media. Now, there, this is kind of part of the major question that we're going to be tackling with because there is new uh, reporting that Google is looking to block Canadian news content from Canadian users. It's something we're going to dive into today, so it may affect how you're able to get your news. So today's daily poll, I'm going to ask you, just building off of this topic, with Bing's new AI chatbot feature and Google's blocking of Canadian content, would that get you to change search engines? Yes, no, or unsure? So I'm going to bring in Mike Ross first to get his opinion on this question. Mike, good morning to you. Hey, Alex. Uh, I think um, when, when a search engine has become a verb, like Google has, um, I think it's going to be hard for a lot of people to find an alternative. And... Unless something like Bing or another search engine of some kind comes along that can catch the uh, the imagination or the notoriety of, or the familiarity that people have with Google, I don't think anybody can touch Google. I mean, it, it's kind of like saying, I'm going to start a new cola and I'm going to try and take on Coke or Pepsi. I mean, they're just so iconic that your cola might be good. It might be very good. You might market the heck out of it, spend a whole bunch of money, gain a bit of a, a foothold in the industry, but you're not touching Coke or Pepsi. It's just not happening. So I think um, I'm going to be one of those people that's going to continue to use Google uh, as a search engine. But I also 
encourage people to actually visit the websites of their favorite news sources. So go to the CBC website, use the CBC app, CTV, which wherever you get your news, use their sites rather than seeking it out on Google and get that, that content directly from the source. Yeah, for me, it's, it's an interesting uh, conversation because I don't think I would have been swayed by just Bing's, you know, chatbots and their AI algorithms and and kind of the new new bells and whistles that they're they're rolling out. That's not going to force me to change. What will force me to change is when you are coming out and saying, "No, we're going to start purposely and uh, directly blocking content because we disagree with something your government is doing." I I think there's that. It's like, well. Now I'm going to have to explore other options because I disagree with what you're doing. I, I always believe in freedom of information. I don't really believe in censorship. So this is, becomes more of a philosophical issue for me. It's like I, I've used Google primarily for many, many, many years. There are other search engines out there, and I think this kind of builds on a trend we've been seeing in the 2020 so far, and especially the last uh, couple of years, 2010s, that was all about building up these massive tech giants, of the Facebook slash Metas, the Twitters, the Googles. But now we're, we're kind of coming to a realization after 10 plus years of, of using these services. Oh, well, there's dark side to this. Oh, they're so powerful. They're starting to really have a big impact and influence on how we operate not only on our personal lives, but now it's getting more into a societal level that, okay, action needs to be taken. Maybe things need, they need to be broken up. Maybe they need to go in a different direction. Maybe they need to become smaller. That said, I mean, Bing is still a, uh, a product of Microsoft, which is not a small company either. So I, I'm torn. I'm definitely going to look at other options, but I, I agree, Mike, the best way to do it is go directly to those sources you want to search on, whether it's a, the Canadian news sites themselves, they have their search functions and all that. But I, I'm going to even look for the day-to-day -day trying to find an alternative search engine just because I really have a problem with what Google is doing. So, Mike, thank you so yeah, much. No, that's, well, that, that, that's, those are all great points. Mm -hmm. um, but what it, what it, I think, comes down to is... Uh, uh, for me, when it comes to news content, as long as it's not affecting other searches, uh, I'd prefer to get my news content straight from the news gatherer rather than going through a search engine because there are so many layers and algorithms used in those search engines that are you really getting at the top of that that list? Are you really getting the news you're looking for? And can you trust what you're getting through that search engine or are they pushing a certain amount of content and certain providers of content. So, yeah, that's that's where I'm going with uh, wanting to go directly to the news organization, getting it straight yeah. from the horse's mouth. <laughs> that's that's a, a great, great point. And so we've heard from you, Mike. We'll get back to you in a second. But first, we want to make sure you at home, you have a chance to weigh in. Give us your opinion, your thoughts. Vote on the poll. You can go on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. or vote on Twitter at Accessible Media and be sure to leave a comment too. We want to hear more from you guys and share your thoughts on this topic because I think it's really, really important. But now we head back to Mike Ross who's going to give us the weather update. 
Thanks a lot, Alex. This is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. St. John's, Newfoundland will be mainly cloudy today with a high of minus 12. Your wind chill this morning, minus 25. It'll rise to minus 20 in the afternoon. In Halifax, you've got 10 centimeters of snow on the way. The high minus 6. The wind chill will be minus 18. In Montreal, periods of light snow. The high is minus 8. The wind chill this morning, minus 22. It warms up, if you can call it that, to minus 15 this afternoon. In Ottawa, mix of sun and cloud with a high of minus 11. The wind chill, minus 24 this morning, minus 18 this afternoon. In Toronto, it'll be mainly cloudy, though the sun is out right now. The high is minus 6, the wind chill minus 16, and that'll rise to minus 8 this afternoon. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, the sun will be shining. The high is minus 10, though the wind chill minus 33 this morning, and that comes with a risk of frostbite. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, sunny with a high of minus 18. The wind chill minus 37 this morning, minus 38 this afternoon. In Saskatoon, you've got a mix of sun and cloud with a high of minus 21. Frostbite is a risk today with a wind chill of minus 39 this morning, minus 30 this afternoon. Into Alberta, Calgary will be mainly cloudy with a high of minus 18. The wind chill will be minus 40 this morning, minus 27 this afternoon. In Edmonton, it'll be sunny with a high of minus 20. The wind chill, minus 40 this morning, minus 27 in the afternoon. In Yellowknife, it'll be sunny with a high of minus 18. The wind chill this morning, minus 42. That goes up to minus 25 after the midday. And into BC, Vancouver, sunny with a high of minus 1. The wind chill minus 11 this morning, minus 6 this afternoon. And Victoria is sunny with a high of plus 1. The wind chill this morning, minus 13. And that is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. We'll be sure to check in with you later on in the show. But coming up next, Michelle McQuig and Juita Gupta are here to kick off the weekly news panel where we're going to be discussing the Chinese government's interference in Canada's 2021 election. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Day Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday. You know what that means. It's time for the weekly news panel. So with that, let's welcome in Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor with the Canadian Press, and Juita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Alex. And good morning, Juita. Good morning. Okay, so our first topic is regarding reports that China may have interfered in the 2021 Canadian election. A Canadian parliamentary committee is exploring if there was foreign interference in the last election, and Emily Javesky filed this report. Members of Parliament have already questioned witnesses from the RCMP, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service and Elections Canada. A report last week from the Globe and Mail said China worked in the last federal election to defeat conservative politicians considered unfriendly to Beijing and to help ensure a liberal minority government. 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said last week that Canadian voters alone decided the last federal election. Emily Jovesky, the Canadian Press. And federal Conservative leader Pierre Polyev has accused Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of ignoring the issue because the report found the Liberals were seen as a favourable outcome to China. Trudeau then responded to those accusations. It's not a partisan issue. This is an issue where foreign countries are trying to undermine people's confidence in our democracies and destabilize those democracies. And when we lean in on partisanship around this, we're actually helping them in doing their work of sowing confusion and mistrust. Now, Juita, this was your topic. So what was it that really interested you about this topic? I think foreign interference in elections has been in the news for quite a number of years. We've had um, some evidence to show that there was Russian interference that allowed the victory of Donald Trump in the United States. And it set off, I think, a flurry of concern, especially about how foreign agents and actors were making use of social media. While it's interesting to see that social media did not come up as a major point in this particular story, there are other avenues that are worth exploring. The uh, contravention of campaign donation rules and the fact that the Chinese government has uh, heavily invested in uh, in helping to hire um, you know through these through companies to try and hire campaign volunteers. I think it's it could be surprising for some people to realize that anyone at all might be interested in interfering with Canada's elections. Um, but it does have broader implications for our democracy for whether people can vote with confidence and know that that has not been the result of foreign interference. And there are a plethora of questions and concerns about how you address this sort of thing moving forward. Yeah, and what... They've obviously taken some measures to deal with the social media side of things, but do we need to go further and do more? Yeah, and we'll certainly dive into kind of what can be done in order to kind of stop this going forward. But Michelle, before we do that, I want to get your take on it. What was your first impressions when you heard this story? <clears throat> Yeah, honestly, uh, Joita laid out the issues really well. I think what really struck me was similar in that there, there was no mess mention of social media, which I think people have come to view with a certain degree of skepticism by and large. But the techniques that were deployed allegedly, um, this is a, always uh, the, the caveat, um, are a lot more sophisticated. So Joita talked about contravention of campaign donation limits that would see uh, people reimbursed for donations they made. That's pretty uh, pretty dubious if that's it's actually if that's happening. Uh, the other aspect was hiring international students who were already here. That's the private companies that Joita was alluding to. Just getting them getting international students to serve as campaign volunteers, something that wouldn't necessarily draw attention on its face. But if this is a coordinated effort taking place in the background, that raises a whole lot of other concerns. The other thing that has jumped out at me, too, is just the, the weird kind of reaction happening here. We do have some very, very bad optics in play. Um, if, if the CSIS report is correct, then the election outcome that China wanted is, in fact, the one that took place. And you have committees not necessarily to, um, agreeing to take on documents in the House as they try to investigate this matter. 
You've got the prime minister asserting that the election was won fairly, which may well be true, but without truly acknowledging that there may be may have been some espionage and some interference at play. Uh, both these things can be true, and we don't seem to be having that kind of nuanced conversation about it yet. So, But it's a really, really interesting one, and certainly one that's only likely to accelerate in, as time goes on, I think. Well, and this is always the issue. Whenever we're, we see a report like this, the the impact has already been made. Whether or not mm -hmm. it was effective, mm -hmm. there's yeah. the perception, there's the doubt that mm -hmm. has been sowed within this election. It's like, well, they they preferred the Liberals over the Conservatives. Well, the Liberals did win. How much influence did they actually have? Did they actually sway anything? Did they do nothing at all? Who knows? Because we we can only go based on, on the end result and the votes that were put in there. But that, that seed of doubt is there, and I don't think that's really going to go away easily. Michelle, why do you think China would be interested in influencing a Canadian election? I just want to go quickly go back to something you said, too. The Conservative Party has alleged that they have lost as, as many as eight or nine seats due to what they call Chinese interference. Um, just to, to be clear on that one, that would not have changed the ultimate outcome of the election. It still would have been a liberal minority, even if the Conservatives had won every seat that they claimed to have lost for this reason. Uh, but Alex, I completely agree with you. It's, it's perception and, and optics that are really, really uh, muddying the waters even further at this point. Uh, in answer to your question, it, it, that's a good one. Um, it's... It, it could be a bit hard to fathom. Uh, Joey had mentioned that off the top that people might wonder why on earth would anyone care about Canada's election results. Um, I, I suspect, A, it's a combination of, A, just having a fairly authoritarian regime that's really trying to flex its muscles globally everywhere. Uh, but I, I think that Canada's relationship to the United States is also probably a factor here. Uh, mm. we're, we're a strong trading partner, both for China and the U.S., uh, the U.S. has had a much more combative stance towards China in recent years than Canada has, so perhaps they were hoping to maintain some kind of ally in North America, although those plans have kind of gone a bit sideways in light of Canada's changing rhetoric on this issue. Um, but that, those would be my best guesses as to why they would want to, to dabble in our election. Juita, what about you? Where do you think the, uh, I guess, the intention comes from with interfering in a Canadian election? Well, I'm making guesses also. I think um, there's a couple of things that might be at play here. One, I think the government of China is concerned about dissidents uh, within Canada and Chinese, uh, you know, and Canadians in Canada who are concerned about the Chinese government. Uh, I'm thinking especially about one particular candidate who was critical of the Chinese government, was uh, happened to be Chinese Canadian. Uh, and Kenny Chu was targeted, he claims, uh, by the Chinese government and lost his seat. Um, and so there might have been a, some fear that a um, that a, a dissident or someone who was critical of the Chinese government, should they gain political office in Canada, would be in a better position to broadcast, uh, would have a, some of their concerns, would have a, a bigger platform to act on some of those concerns. And that was causing some concern back in China, that this would have a, a trickle-down effect or would have some kind of an influence in China. I think that's one of the reasons. Uh, Michelle alluded to the other one, which is I think it has a lot to do with our 
um, relationship with the United States, where we've been an ally to the United States. And we, I think, uh, remember the arrest of the two Michaels, uh, the Mang Wanzhou situation here in Canada, where she was uh, detained in Vancouver because uh, the United States uh, wanted us to do that. And of course, now the, the controversy about whether we should ban Huawei from the 5G networks in Canada. So there's all of this tension in the background when you consider the Canada-China relationship. And as Michelle pointed out, it is an authoritarian government. They are looking to be more aggressive on the global stage. And they believe that the liberals are a known quantity. And even if the relationship with the liberals has been a little tense in the last couple of years for all the reasons that I've talked about and that we have all talked about extensively on this panel and elsewhere, there is a bit of hesitation in Beijing to allow a government to come into place that might be more hostile to Beijing than the liberals have been. So it could be a number of reasons. It's really hard to say, uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with the background um, that uh, and the context of Canada-China relations, which I think we've talked about in some detail on the panel, so I won't talk about mm -hmm. it more here. Well, and I, I think, too, there there is a bit of an understatement of Canada's place in the international stage. I mean, we are a G7 nation, uh, and, mm -hmm. and this complicated mm -hmm. relationship with China has is not something new. I mean, you, you both have touched on it, but also, too, remember back when uh, Canada was up for the renewal of its UN Security Council seat and China mm -hmm. vetoed mm -hmm. that, that, uh, um, that uh, selection. So this is something that has been kind of in... I guess uh, in the consciousness for a while, this this contentious relationship, trying to balance the pros and cons, because China is the biggest exporter. It's a, it's a huge trade partner, but there's also these geopolitical issues that need to uh, be addressed. So, in terms yeah, of point. in terms of how do we deal with this? Like, what should the government do? Not only to uh, if these reports come are, are are confirmed to be accurate, how do we? deal with China? And then how do we protect ourselves to ensure that this doesn't happen going forward? And I'll start I'll start with uh, Joita on this one. Um, I think it's uh, it's going to need. Remember, as you said, there's all in terms of the 2021 election, although Justin Trudeau has strenuously said that it did not affect um, the outcome of the elections. I really liked your point, Alex, about saying that it has sown a seed of doubt about the elections. And I think there's going to need to be some kind of a conversation about how this has very quickly turned into a partisan issue domestically. Um, I think, uh, you know, the question can, could have been asked that in terms of the 2021 elections, if it had, if the shoe had been on the other foot, and if the liberals had been the ones who were likely to lose seats because of Chinese interference, would they have been more aggressive? I mean, there, that question will always, I think, be asked, and there'll always be a bit of a suspicion. Uh, but I think we need to recognize that the situation is very different from the Trump situation, where there is at least some evidence to show that people within the Trump campaign had colluded with uh, Russian foreign interference uh, actors, and I think that has not been a charge that's been levied against the liberals. So all of those distinctions as we as we sort of get into answering a question about what needs to be done here, I think those that context and that distinction is really important to keep in mind because it's it is very tempting to lump the situation in with what we've seen happen at the United States and it's not the same thing at all. Um I think 
there's a couple of things that people have have suggested. One, of course, is that you expel diplomats. Um, of course, uh, you can expel Chinese diplomats. And what's China going to do? They're going to expel our diplomats. It's going to be a bit of a tit for tat. I don't really see it accomplishing anything. Uh, but we know that there are Canadians who cooperated here. There's evidence that there was some um, uh, violation of campaign uh, donation rules. Um, and also there were people who, as, as Michelle pointed out, um, hired international students who are here to act as campaign workers. And so you might want to think about ways that some people uh, involved with this or Canadians involved with this could be prosecuted. Not only would this be a way to, for lack of a better word, punish the people who are involved, uh, but then you might also start to look at this as a deterrent to people not acting out similarly in future. Um, so in terms of future measures to prevent this sort of thing from happening altogether, um, you know, we this the CSIS or CSIS has the 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 ability to gather intelligence, but they don't really prosecute. So there's not very much they can do about it, but maybe we need to have a conversation about empowering Election Canada or ways in which we can empower Election Canada to better deal with or act upon uh, threats of foreign interference in our elections. Uh, when you think about um, trying to bring in not just the Election Commission to tackle some of these issues, but at least referring the cases of fraud to the RCMP, for example, or the Canada Revenue Agency, they might be able to tackle some of these issues. I think some of the work that's been done to combat disinformation and misinformation on social media, although I did say earlier it's not been the big issue, I think some of those efforts need to be ongoing. And I think um, there perhaps needs to be, and this is my one concrete suggestion, some way of tracking and registering foreign agents and actors mm -hmm. who might be interfering yeah, in our yeah, elections, yeah. because Canada has a, a way of tracking Canadian lobbyists, uh, but we don't have anything to track foreign lobbyists. But that's really about it, and I'll let somebody else talk because <laughs> I've been going on for quite a while now. <laughs> Michelle, I'll give you the final, final word on this one before we, sure. we wrap this topic up. Yeah, the foreign agent registry is one I was going to mention for sure. That's a measure that's in place already in places like Australia and the U.S., and Canada is still discussing it. Um, so that's we're a bit behind the eight ball on that kind of global trend with our other G7 peers, if that's the, the way we opt to go. Um, but one thing I will mention that Canada seems to be doing since this election, which is kind of interesting, I, I feel like we need to talk about the Indo-Pacific strategy that was released recently uh, that came out late last year, and one of its explicit aims is to mitigate China's influence globally. So that's another path that we seem to be exploring, not necessarily to curb election fraud, but certainly to kind of go work around China, try to draw their fangs a little bit. I, I don't know how effective it's going to be, but we'll see at that point. But Canada is taking a more aggressive stance against China with strategies like that than we were in the past. You might remember there was a lot of criticism leveled at the government for not speaking up when the two Michaels were incarcerated, for instance. Um, so that's a, a, an interesting aspect. In terms of at-home actions, though, Joeda mentioned the bulk of them, but one thing I will point out is that Canada has a very complex electoral bureaucracy. Uh, elections Canada and the Commissioner of Canadian Elections are different offices and different departments with different mandates. Uh, people get that wrong all the time, even in the media. It gets quite confusing. Um, so I think there would need to be um, a some clarity on how, how who handles what, basically. But also, there, I think there, there, we're going to hear a lot more calls for transparency on how these things are being addressed. We're going to hear calls for more reports to be made public, for people to be more clear about what they knew and when they knew it. Uh, all of these things... Uh, greater openness and transparency on this issue uh, could could 
lead to some less circular conversations than the ones we've been having lately, I think. Absolutely. I, I, I agree, Michelle. I think, you know, making it clearer, making it simple, letting the people understand exactly what is going on as much as possible, I think, is, is the way to go. Okay, so we're going to leave that topic there. We're going to take a break. But coming up after the break, the news panel continues. Michelle and Joita are going to chat about Google's push back to the Online News Act. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to the Now News Panel on AMI. We got Michelle McQuig, we got Joita Gupta. Our next topic of discussion, Bill C-18, or the Online News Act, has been discussed on the program before. It would require digital giants such as Google or Meta, which owns Facebook, to negotiate deals that would compensate Canadian media companies for republishing their content on their platforms. Google is pushing back on this proposed bill by cutting access to news content on its site. It's conducting a five-week trial, which would block content to 4% of its Canadian users. Now, Michelle, this was your topic. So what kind of stood out to you about this? Like, what is your immediate reaction when you saw the story? Yeah, well, it, my first reaction was, oh boy, when I saw Google's salvo fired across the bow over earlier this week. Um, they position it as a minor trial, expecting a very. They they use the word very small percentage of its users. It's only a limited time. They're they're they claim that they're testing the potential impact of Bill C eighteen if it were to pass. Um, in different terms, we're talking about new censorship for more than a million people. That's a very different matter than when we just talk about bills in the abstract or with the kind of debates you hear on the House of Commons floor or in the Senate chambers. This is something that is going to have an immediate impact on more than a million people. It's a, a, an instance of big tech really flexing its muscles in a very direct way. And it's the kind of thing that I suspect might galvanize this issue with the public in ways that it wouldn't have necessarily been had yeah. this kind of action not been taken. As soon as you have actions being taken that hit people exactly where they live, like not able to access news and sports on their phones, uh, this is going to get people's attention more than any kind of news coverage or, or political debate will. So I felt this was an interesting move, not one that's unprecedented. We've seen Meta and Google do similar stuff in other countries, um, but it's definitely a new chapter in this particular fight here in Canada. So I thought it would be a good time to explore the issue. Absolutely. Now, Joita, I want to first get your initial reaction or thoughts on uh, this topic and, and what you thought when you heard the news. Well, I mean, the bill is in some respects long overdue. And what it's saying is that it will require uh, social media sites like and, and browsers and search engines like Google or Meta that owns Facebook um, and other social media providers to start to compensate Canadian news agencies and content creators if they use their their information or if they if social media circulates their their stories and their news coverage and i think that's something that is very important to keep in mind as we have a conversation about this bill uh, because canadian media canadian journalism is really struggling right now and i think that's an important part of this conversation so when you think about what google is trying to do here it is clearly uh, a bit of a power play 
How successful they'll be um, remains to be seen. Uh, it's clearly an intimidation tactic. Uh, it's a way to try and get the government to back off from the bill. Um, and I am very curious to see whether the government will back down, make some kind of a deal with them, or whether Google will be forced to back down. Because as you have pointed out earlier in the show, yes, they're the biggest player, but there are other search engines that are up and coming, Alex, that are, you know, catching up pretty fast. And just because you're the king of the castle today or you're at the top of the hill doesn't mean you remain that way. So how this all plays out, both in terms of public perception, but also in terms of Google uh, either having to capitulate to what the government wants or the government having to negotiate and capitulate to Google, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch. Yeah, well, and we saw a similar type of situation with Twitter when it lost so many of its users that they were trying to find other social media platforms and sites that they could go to. This is slightly different because there there have been long-established other search engines out there and ones that, you know, are still funded, developed, and owned and operated by major companies like Bing with Microsoft. I mean, this is not starting from scratch trying someone coming up to compete with a Google, which is a billion dollar company. You got other billion dollar companies to have search engines. So uh, you, you mentioned it though, uh, Joita, like you're uh, wondering what the government's going to do. So uh, Michelle, let's start with you. Like, what do you think Canada should do in response? You mentioned this was kind of the shot across the bow. Some could argue the, the introduction of the bill was the first shot, Google's re, uh, responded. Now, how is Canada going to react to this this latest attack or, or yeah. change or impression? So far, the response has been pretty unequivocal. Uh, it's only words at this point, though. So, so far, Canada's reaction has been to say, we will not be intimidated. We're not going to budge because of this action. You're not doing yourself any favors by going this route. Um, and I suspect a lot of people would like to see the government stay the course on that messaging and actually follow through on it and not bow to Google's pressure. Um, the, the bill itself is, is quite complicated, and some of the issues that Google has raised uh, might merit some discussion. They, they, there's an issue, for instance, about prioritizing credible news sources versus over other ones. Um, that's the hill that Google is choosing to stake its flag on when talking about this battle. But at the end of the day, of course, this is a bill that is going to penalize them and is going to have some financial repercussions. So I think that there would be a bit of an outcry if the government were to give in to Google's demands on that one, and it would probably be seen as them succumbing to big tech for financial reasons only. Uh, so I suspect that the government will probably stick to their current messaging and probably not make any significant changes to the bill. That would be my, that would be my guess. That, that would certainly be the, the easy, most straightforward and cleanest uh, way to not ratchet up the tensions mm -hmm. more, stick to your your gun, so to speak, and ensures like, okay, this is where we are. We're, we're not going to be intimidated. We're just going to continue. This is what is happening. But Joita, what do you think? Is, are there any actions you think the government should take or will take uh, in response to this? Oh, well, I think Michelle um, has the right of it. I do agree with her that I think what the Canadian public will expect from the government right now is to stick to their guns and not bow to big tech. Um, and so I think the Canadian government can put out a strong message, but generally stick to their guns. This is a negotiation between big tech and the government. Uh, in Australia, when Meta said that we're going to pull news stories off of Facebook, if you force us to pay to post them there, uh, what ended up happening was 
they entered into a negotiation with the Australian government, whereby, as far as I know, uh, Facebook and other social media does still have to pay for the use of that content in Australia, but they get more time to negotiate when and how much they actually pay. So it is a negotiation, and both parties will have to come to the table. I think we sometimes overestimate how powerful Google or any other platform really is. I remember about 20 years ago, um, you used to have MySpace, you used to have all of these other platforms for uh, sharing music. Uh, I think there was something called Napster. I'm forgetting now. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, t- <laughs> 10 years ago, everybody got all of their information off of blogs. Who goes uh, and, uh, you know, you, but you don't see fi- uh, you know, peer-to-peer music sharing um, anymore. You don't see people going to blogs anymore. I mean, blogs are are there, but they're not as prominent as they used to be. My point is Google has primacy today. Um, And that is to Google's advantage that they are in a position where they can say to advertisers, to quote Mike Ross, who said it really well, come on, you want to advertise with Google? We're practically a verb. I think he put it really well. But you know what? (laughs) There are other search engines who will say, okay, if Google's not going to post your news stories, we will. We can be the people that that Canadians can turn to for the news content and the sports that they're not getting on Google. Come to us. You know, we have have people coming our way. So Google also stands to lose in this situation. I think we sometimes perceive the situation uh, as more of a David and Goliath situation, which it clearly isn't. Google needs end users to be satisfied um, and I think most people are far more informed about the internet today and they are far more aware that there are other options that are out there where if Google's not going to post the news stories if the Google's not going to post the sports stories fine I'll go and you know use something else yeah and Michelle off the top of this segment you mentioned uh, uh, that this is also has broader implications of this is news censorship and, and it's a censorship story. It's not something that we in Canada, much much like our, our first topic, it's not something that we're either used to or, or kind of we've thought about a lot in terms of the Canadian context of things happening here. But do you, what are the like kind of the longer reaching, uh, a long-term impacts that something like this situation could have if we go down a long, bitter road of fighting for censorship within our Canadian content? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I worry about what that will do to the discourse uh, generally, which I always worry about, as listeners of the panel will know. Uh, but I, I think this would greatly uh, complicate matters even further. If you have allegations of censorship, which you already kind of do, you, you already have a lot of media hostility out there. I don't see these conversations as being helpful on that front. If you have people then being able, you know, being even further distrustful of the sources of their information. Um, I, I don't see that as doing any favors on a sort of civic engagement level um, and a society cohesiveness level. So I do worry a bit about that. And 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 censorship is a big issue and one that it can very, very easily get pulled in partisan directions, even though it affects us all. Uh, there are some parties who have been more proactive than others in associating their identity with with freedom of expression and and freedoms generally. And I think if a censorship narrative comes to the fore, that will play directly into that specific playbook. And I don't see that doing much to cool any political tensions that may be simmering below the surface or right out in the open. Absolutely. And this bill has been one that that has really been falling along partisan lines. So I, I, I would imagine that 
if a censorship controversy really kicks into high gear, that those would just really explode. Absolutely. Now, Joita, what about you? I'm going to give you the last word on on this topic. Uh, like, are you are you concerned at all of the long term implications on new mm -hmm. censorship that this could have? I want to problematize the use of the term censorship. We don't have censorship happening in the sense that these social media giants are uh, curtailing the spread of a certain type of news story or suppressing a particular point of view. And I think that is a very important distinction to make. What they are doing is effectively taking away access to all news and all sports and so on and so forth from, um, you know, now it's about a million people, but assuming they roll it out, it'll be just about everybody who is a Google user in Canada. And so that's just keeping that in, in mind. I think what it does is opens up this whole Pandora's box where we are forced to reckon with the fact that social media giants and Google and Facebooks and so on and so forth have a great deal of influence on how media is delivered. I think though, when you talk about the conversations in terms of public discourse and civil in, civic engagement, I think going back to what the intent of the bill is becomes very important. And again, I said to you before, and I'll say it again, the bill is basically saying to these social media giants that, look, if you're going to post Canadian news content, you need to pay the content creators and the owners of the news. That's the basic idea. And as I said again a few minutes ago, when I come back to this and link it to the conversation about censorship, Canadian news media is not as flush with funds as it used to be. Advertising revenue is being taken away from the more traditional news media, and it's getting diverted to social media platforms more and more. The traditional newsroom is in crisis. Um, I've heard of many stories where entire newsrooms have been uh, shut down, especially in smaller local towns. Scores of journalists have been let go. Newsrooms are working with fewer staff. It has implications for the kinds of of questions we ask and the kind of journalism we do. Not everybody is able to do that really in-depth investigative piece that they really wanted to get into because they just don't have the people to pull it off. So that when we have conversations about censorship, I think those are the, the deeper conversations we need to be having. It's not just enough to say uh, that we're, no, Canadians are not going to have access to the news, but if the bill doesn't go through and if we if we allow tech giants to call the shots here, what kind of Canadian journalism are we going to have? What kind of questions will get asked? What kind of answers will be posed? Will journalism do what it's always been intended to do, which is to hold governments and people in positions of power to account? Those are the questions that I leave you with. Yeah, and Amen. That is all. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't, right <laughs> I, I can't uh, top that at all, so we're going to leave it right there. So coming up after the break, our final topic for the day, we explore the issues around Ontario's autism support services. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe and I have Juwita Gupta and Michelle McQuig with me today. So. Our final story for the news panel this week is a story came out about an Ontario family that moved to Alberta because they could not access autism services and supports for their daughter. After receiving a diagnosis in 2020, they have been on a wait list ever since. Mother Marie Lee decided to look alternatives. 
I just started doing research. I started diving in to say, okay, where in Canada has the best opportunity for children with autism? What governments cover what? I'm not going to have my daughter suffer because financially we cannot afford to pay all of that money out of pocket. It's impossible. And when they narrowed in on Alberta, she says that the process was very quick. We're already approved for daycare down there. We have daycare coverage. I had the doctor here um, fill out all of the medical documentation that they needed, um, which allows her to get all of those supports. So she will have all the coverage in daycare, and it's already been approved, and I'm not even there yet. Data from Ontario's Financial Accountability Office showed that in 2019-2020, there were about 50,000 kids on the wait list for autism services. In 2021, the Ford government doubled the budget for the autism program, but the changes they made did not improve the limited availability of those services. Mary Lee Fullerton, the Minister of Children, Community and Social Services, initially said that the government would enroll 8,000 kids into core clinical services as behavioral, such as behavioral therapy by the end of the fall 2021 and into 2022. However, the Canadian press has reported that only 888 children had been registered into those core therapies. So I, I want to start with uh, you, Michelle. Like, how did, when you heard this story, how does this sit with you that, you know, you, you hear the story of someone physically having to leave the province to go elsewhere to get access to services? Okay, first of all, I need you guys to forgive me for a sec while I just plug the work of two of my colleagues at CP, Cindy Tran, <laughs> for telling this story of, of Marie Lee and, and what's happened here, who's not alone, by the way, and Allison Jones, who's one of our political reporters at, at the Ontario Legislature, who's done a lot of great work over the years of tracking the, the autism program and the many, many, many headaches that have befallen that program. Um, this is a really striking story, and it's not isolated, and it really speaks to exactly how problematic the autism file has been in Ontario. We've had multiple administrations, multiple governments, different parties in power. No one has been able to make headway on this file and come up with a system that seems to be working. And I don't, it, it's very striking to see the different approaches at play. The fact that people feel they need to leave Ontario and then can come to Alberta and have everything processed within three months, uh, the way Marie Lee indicated that she's having. Um, Autism, uh, access to autism services is, of course, a, a really important issue for parents. Um, there's a whole other conversation to be had about services for autistic adults that doesn't happen a lot. It's all focused on, on early interventions and therapies and treatments for children, but that's a whole other issue. The fact is, though, that this has been a, an incredibly fraught issue. It just seems to be getting worse. And now the Ontario government has doubled down by refusing to disclose any further numbers. So now we don't even have a real sense of what kind of progress they're making or whether they're reaching the goals that they've laid out. So this is a really thorny file and a story like the one Marie Lee is telling puts a human face on this. Well, because whenever you're you're not disclosing numbers anymore, it's always because they're positive, right? I mean, it's oh yeah, it's going absolutely. So well, you don't need to see the numbers. But uh, all, all kidding aside, uh, Joita, what were your first uh, initial reactions when when you heard this story and you heard these reports? That it's an unmitigated disaster. Uh, it's sometimes it's important to call a spade a spade. Um, the program is supposed to help eight thousand kids. They've helped about eight hundred and eighty-eight. They've met about ten percent of their targets. It's really been a source of frustration for parents, some of whom are now having to leave the province, which is a really 
like it's a huge move to pack up you know your life and move away from your friends and family and your jobs it's not just that you wave a magic wand and move to a different province people are having to pack up their whole lives just so that their children can have access to autism care we have to remember that this is hurting kids uh if you look at just marie lee's story uh she applied for autism services in 2020 and was told uh she got into the the OAP, the uh, the portal, some two years later and thought, okay, fine, we're finally going to get funding. No, no, you're not going to get funding. You won't even get an assessment of 2027. This hurts kids. It's a classic example of a lot of people talking a lot about a lot of things, but nothing getting done. Absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of this, I think we can all agree that uh, you, you both alluded to there. This is not a success. This program, these, uh, this file is not a, a successful one, and it, it's, it goes beyond as, as Michelle, you, you laid out. Like this is multiple governments, multiple parties who have worked on this, had had a chance to crack it. None of them have been able to really have a good breakthrough. So, at this point, is do we have to look at some way involving the federal government to ensure that? There is access to autism services for for parents and, and children with autism that there needs to be some sort of accountability at the federal level to ensure access is available for people who need it. And uh, I'll start with you, Joita. Yes, I think so. To keep, uh, to keep it simple, um, I 100% agree with that. And I think, uh, and I'm not an expert on the law, but the Canada Health Act does say that Canadians should be entitled to the same access of health, you know, the same uh, quality of health care, regardless of where they live in the country. And I wonder if that argument can and should and ought to be extended to disability related supports. I'm not just talking about autism, although that's the issue at hand that we're talking about today. But I suspect that if you were to do a deep dive, there are considerable disparities disparities and differences between disability supports uh, from province to province. So I would say that maybe if you want to take a health angle and and, and employ the Canada Health Act, uh, certainly uh, that argument could be made that the federal government needs to get involved. Where you're going to get in trouble is with implementation. We know that nothing to do with the Health Act is ever straightforward. There mm -hmm. are endless quibbling and quarreling about the federal health transfers and equalization payments so, you know why is it that alberta has to pay for ontario's healthcare system when you know your your parents with kids who have autism are coming to alberta to use our healthcare system and so on and so forth i can see this becoming quite a political uh, you know back and forth but certainly i think there's a role for the federal government here to play yep. and also if you want to look at it from a social model of disability maybe that's yeah that's <laughs> maybe the other way to come at this is you know to say we have an accessible canada act yeah. and which talks about removing barriers so perhaps there's a role there for the accessible canada act and the people responsible for implementation of that act to take a more proactive role how absolutely. that would be i do not know absolutely <laughs> so uh we're running out of time but michelle i want to give you final word on this topic and on the news panel yeah, I'll be quick. Uh, but yeah, I feel like the federal, I, I'm with Joita entirely in that feeling there should be a role for the feds in this, but I feel like their tools are limited. I feel like going through the Canadian Health Act would raise issues about adhering to the medical model of disability, which is uh, not one that people want to return to and is actually not the one that underpins the Accessible Canada Act. Now, that act is supposed to deal exclusively with matters that fall within federal jurisdiction, and we haven't seen a whole lot of expansion on, on that mandate at this point. Uh, or a lot of ac other action on that, to my knowledge. But um, th this is something that 
maybe would be ripe for expansion down the road because as as Joita said, there are huge gaps, there's massive inconsistencies, and there is a, an issue of equity at the core of all this that governments traditionally are supposed to try to address. Well, that's all the time we have for the Now News panel. I want to thank Michelle McQuig. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining me. Joita Gupta, thank you so much. You both shared excellent thoughts. So uh, have a wonderful uh, day and a wonderful weekend, both of you. Same thank to you, everybody. Take care. Okay, so Michelle McQuig is a news editor with the Canadian Press and uh, audio. Coming up in the second hour of the show, we got the sports report and Michael McNeely stops by to talk about a pretty classic film. You're watching a now, a now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.